Hello, hello, welcome, science fans, sex fans, relationship fans, fans of Bay, <laughs> fans of the Eagles. Welcome to the So Curious Podcast presented by the Franklin Institute. The Franklin Institute has a lot of fans. Mm-hmm. We're your hosts and I am the Bull Bay. And I am Kirsten Michelle Sills and Bay and I are so beyond stoked to bring you this season that talks all about the science behind love, sex, and relationships. Everything from what does your brain look like on love to why we obsess over our favorite television characters to how science and tech are changing our relationships with each other. And when we think about relationships, especially intimate relationships, it's often the norm to think about the bond between two people. But today, we're going to explore beyond those boundaries, looking at how people build other relationship structures. For this episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Jorge Ferrer, a couples therapist who works with all different kinds of relationships. And later, we are joined by Janet Hardy to discuss her work exploring modern perspectives on non-monogamous relationships. We've got so much to talk about in this episode of So Curious. Oh, boy, do we. All right, Bay, have you ever considered being a part of a non-monogamous relationship before? I think in my imagination. I mean, practically speaking, it is intimidating and scary, and it's a big mystery that... I would just rather stay completely away from. Mm -hmm. I think I sit and imagine all kinds of stories and epic adventures and so on and so forth. So I think about it, but not in any kind of like serious considering Mm -hmm. kind of a way. But there are people who literally wrap their lives and routines and identity around like, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm being non-committal to one person Mm -hmm. in respect. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think when it comes to non-monogamous relationships, For me, I've considered non-monogamous relationships on the sexual side, but maybe not on the romantic side, because there's a lot of different ways to have relationships, right? Right, right. Human interaction definitely exists on a spectrum. Yeah, yeah, I always found it interesting that we have like, what, work husbands and, you know, people (laughs) talk about, oh, this is my second mom Mm -hmm. and things like that. And, you know, no one bats an eyelash, but as soon as you start talking about, like, it's my second wife, Mm -hmm. that's a little... (laughs) A little different. Very true. There's a lot of stigma around that, which is what we're going to get into, actually. Right. And our first guest knows quite a bit about non-monogamy. He literally wrote the book on it. Dr. Jorge Ferrer. Would you mind introducing yourself, telling us who you are, what you do for a living? My name is uh, Jorge Ferrer. And uh, what I do for a living now is like uh, I have like an international private practice, like uh, seeing individuals and couples, you know, normally around issues around uh, uh, how to achieve more fulfilling relationships. Also, we deal with things uh, such as jealousy, infidelities, also open relationships and the design more satisfying relationships. For 20 years, I was a professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. I was chairing a department there. About a year and a half ago, I decided to go freelance, move away from academia and focus my work more on the direct transformation with people through counseling and also through workshops and webinars and things like this. You wrote a book called Love and Freedom, Transcending Monogamy and Polyamory. What is this book about? And can you share a little bit of the findings that you've described in this book? This book is about uh, something that I experienced in my own life. For quite some time, I lived like some long periods of like both non-monogamy, polyamory, and also monogamy. And at some point, I started realizing that I didn't fit in any of those two boxes. I felt I had the freedom to be polyamorous or monogamous, depending on the parts that like life lie upon you, you know, or the people that you would meet or the developmental moment and so forth. So in this book, what I'm trying to do is also to 
to really kind of like open up a spectrum of like relational possibilities that are socially supported because we live in a very mononormative or monocentric culture and society that mostly support only monogamy uh, institutionally, socially, uh, morally, even religiously and so forth. So uh, I'm trying also to open that up, but in a way that doesn't create a new canon, like that polyamory is better than monogamy or, or, or any other style is better than any other style, but like really support them. Like you can be in any relationship style for the right and the wrong reasons. And I feel like a lot of people believe monogamy has always been the standard. However, this isn't the case. Can you give us a history lesson on monogamy? What we know about the monogamy in archaic times is speculative. There is different hypotheses that serial monogamy was the case. There's another hypothesis that we were a very poly, very promiscuous species, you know. The evidence suggests that there were like different mating strategies depending on different geographical conditions, such as like food availability, incidence of predators and so forth. Fast forward, you know, to uh, the Neolithic times and the emergence of agriculture. There's quite consensus that agriculture also came together with private property, surplus of production, and uh, and also the interest and obsession uh, later on of men to make sure that they were uh, leaving their inheritance to their sons and daughters, not to the neighbors. Mm. So this became also the control of female sexuality in the West. And also the, the monogamy was kind of starting to become social imposed. Of course, this also like took uh, more social proportions, like in the Greek and Roman times. As well, there was like a period Greeks and Romans where they differentiate themselves from the barbarians because of their monogamy, even though, of course, they had concubines and uh, sex slaves, but they were only married to one woman. Mm. And Christianity came into all this. The Greek or Roman monogamy shaped actually Christian views on relationship styles. There is many uh, hypotheses about why all this was happening. I don't think we cannot get into them right here, but uh, the last thing I will say is that in the 20th century, we have moved from this kind of uh, paradigm of uh, lifelong monogamy to what is called serial monogamy. And, uh, and there have been many factors causing the shift, like greater longevity, and, uh, and in particular, the invasion of the pill and the entry of women uh, into the labor market. Earlier, you mentioned leaving the world of academia. Did you find that the world of academia in terms of its systems and its terms, was it limiting in any way in your service to people and trying to help them explore monogamy and help mm. them explore polyamory? I was fortunate to teach a very liberal institution in the Bay Area of San Francisco. Mm. So I did not have that issue. You know, I used to teach even classes on transpersonal sexuality and spirituality and sexuality. I had full freedom uh, mm. to invite people speaking about polyamory, monogamy, and so forth. So I was very lucky enough in that regard. Coming to your question, is like uh, there was a way in which when you are uh, in academia or you're writing for academics, so you you reach, you know, much less people than you could reach otherwise. Love and Freedom is a book I wrote for the educated public, but I, want, I was trying to reach much more people than um, my prior academic books. And later on, I just published a book in Spanish uh, on the topic completely popular, you know, with exercises and diagrams, you know. So in a way, it's really about like reaching, reaching more people, you know, because academics basically will speak to ourselves and a few other mm. academics. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> that's a very good point, right? And you're a counselor for people having issues with monogamy, polyamory and beyond. Can you share what are some of the most common reasons people seek counseling in these areas? 
Well, I would say that one of the main issues is like uh, for couples after the having quite a number of years together, normally more than four, five, six, seven, like sexual habituation kicks in, you know, uh, the sexual desire is not as good as, uh, or not as strong as it used to be. And therefore, uh, their sexual satisfaction gets, gets lower. So many of the couples come like, like saying, listen, we really love each other. We want to stay with each other, but uh, we don't want to sacrifice sexual passion. What can we do? Another of the situations in which like uh, one of the two members of the couple, they want to open the relationship and the other member doesn't want it. And then we help them to navigate the situation and to try to find a commitment and arrangement that works for both of them. And of course, uh, there is always the eternal issues of cheating, jealousy and infidelity that uh, of course are also paramount and also interface with these uh, other issues in, in quite complex ways. What do you see more of? Do you see more couples finding ways to amicably part or more couples trying to find ways to stay together and work through it? In my experience, the people who come to speak to me, at least I cannot generalize, uh, they actually want to stay together, but they want to stay together without sacrificing the regenerative, healing, transcendent powers of sexuality and sexual power passion, you know, and they and they have they don't have that. And therefore they have like this dilemma, you know. In a few cases the counseling could lead towards separation or even a sometime apart. So they come back together, you know. But very often, I give them like some protocols, you know, to rekindle their sexuality. Sometimes we discuss the possibility of uh, opening the relationship. That is what many, what, what is called monogamish couples do these days. It's called the open monogamy or the new monogamy. You know, there's an increasing number of couples, normally post-patriarchal couples, you know, that after a number of years, they give each other free passes, you know. For example, when they travel afar, mm. when they go to conventions, when they go to certain festivals, like Burning Man or Boom or something like this. <laughs> they, they give each other free passes to explore other uh, sex, sexual diversity. How do you know diversity. about Burning Man? Yeah. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> but not, all this stuff is very funny, but yeah. you just dropped Burning Man yeah. d- distinctly, specifically. That's like, hilarious. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That does seem like a place you would take a free pass. <laughs> right, right, right. But talk to us about clients navigating jealousy in both you know romantic and sexual contexts. How do you help them move through that? The first thing I try to do is to try to normalize it and to help them to understand that there are very archaic roots that we all carry inside of us from our evolutionary past. You know, we all have those tendencies. It's like living fossils within us, you know, and also to examine their biography because depending on your biography, you know, your relationship with your parents, with your siblings, you know, if there is like some kind of trauma, then the, the opening of your conscious to that kind of, you know, evolutionary tendencies could be like wider or narrower. But mostly I also give them some practices. In the book, I described this practice kind of I adopted from Buddhist practice, you know, it's on sympathetic joy, empathic joy, in which like people really like to try to, after deciding well-being and joy for oneself, you know, and for your partner, you do this practice like trying to cultivate genuine love and well-being for this third person that is triggering jealousy in you. Mm. This may sound very counterintuitive because our monocentric culture have told us these people are our, our rivals, our enemies, you know, but this practice, interestingly, was designed by the Tibetan people, you know, to deal with the enemy. The Dalai Lama encouraged this practice to the Tibetan people who went after the Chinese invasion to practice the Chinese. And it does something, it does something to the egoic system that uh, it can help to metabolize those emotions in a different way, in a more special sense of, sense of selfhood. So I found it really effective. And in 
the book is described. What are some of your ideas around rethinking relationships? How can you help people really, really tackle these issues, these tough conversations and kind of reshape the concept of person to person mm -hmm. relationships? Some of these perspectives I bring, I've shared a few with you, is like uh, is to help people to have a more constructive and compassionate like approach to both jealousy and all these in particular infidelities, you know, because infidelities in particular is like this cultural major reaction that people are damaged and there are something wrong with them, you know, uh, you know, politically it's a disaster. It's like almost something in the States in particular, not in France, but in the States in particular. It's something really bad, no? And uh, and there are many reasons why people uh, cheat, for example, you know, there's a spectrum of motivations from the more selfish and mindless to uh, more like needs for rediscovery and uh, regeneration and like really like making changes in the relationship, you know, both men and women. So I help them to, to have a different approach to uh, to infidelity on the one hand and of course like through all this um, new paradigm of uh, moving beyond the monogamy polyamory binary mapping different pathways like different ways in which people can situate themselves in different circumstances and developmental moments in one or other relationship or beyond them that gives a lot of freedom I'm always after relational freedom the capability for people to be more autonomous and free in their relational choices you should feel free in a relationship right no one should feel like you're being tied down, quote unquote. In this moment, I'm kind of conflicted in a way because I'm very, very dedicated in my relationship and I'm trying to mm -hmm. chew on the thought as we have this conversation, like, you know, does dedication mean monogamy or does dedication means poly? And, and can those things go together? Can you still be in a dedicated relationship, but have those poly elements be very, very active. The sense of being dedicated to your partner is about wanting both of you to be your happiest, best selves in your relationship, right? So if being dedicated means your partner says to you, this is something that I want to explore and it's not something that's going to make you happy, then absolutely, right? But if if it is, you know, that's dedication in itself. You know, one of the most touching and best definitions of love I've ever heard was like that love is uh, supporting your partner wherever she needs or he needs to go for her growth, you know, mm. even in that decision, even that support takes her away from you. That's true love, you know, the race is possession. I don't know what uh, love with possession or love with that freedom is. I'm not really sure, but I'm pretty sure it's not love. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Man, let and that so sink in. You have a term. I am not going to try to pronounce it. I'm just going to spell it out. N-O-U-G-A-M-Y. You coined this term. Could you explain how to pronounce it, what it is? Novogamy. So basically, I with this term, like I named like a... Uh, this array of different relational options beyond the monogamy and polyamory binary. Because today you are either monogamous or you are polyamorous. Ten years ago, you were either male or female, you know, and the transgender movement taught us through the relief experience that there is a variety of possibilities in between and beyond. So I'm trying to do the same with relational options. I'll just give you a couple of examples. One is that developmentally, like at certain points of my life, I may need uh, to have like a monogamous container in my relationships, you know, and maybe another times like uh, polyamory is what is most important for my growth. Mm -hmm. So am I monogamous or polyamorous depending on when, you know, in my life, you know, or for example, like our inner diversity, you know, many people are monogamous 
in their hearts and in their minds. They believe in monogamy, they feel monogamy, but in their guts, in their sexual desire, they are very poly. So are you monogamous or are you polyamorous? Depending on what part of yourself you ask. The last example, of course, is like today is like we live house in a silver silver world, you know, that is, and and wait until, uh, you know, Zuckerberg brings his new version of the the cyber world, right? Mm. So uh, mega it's called, right? Uh, So anyway, there is people like uh, having avatars and they have like lives in that world. So some people could be very monogamous in this everyday life and being very poly in that world and have like a lot of romantic connections and walks in the beach and dinners or vice versa. So uh, there are many more examples mapped out in the book. Uh, so I call Novogamy to that general movement beyond the mono uh, polybinary. And also for those people who feel that they don't identify themselves with either monogamy or polyamorous, but they, they feel the need for, a, for an identity, like transgender to, to, to people who identify with male or female. So for some of these people, you know, uh, I offer that term, but I don't care about terms. Uh, I also say in the book that for some people, they may just don't, don't want to use any term whatsoever. And uh, I really support all possibilities in so much as they decrease human suffering and help us all of us to live more harmonious relationships and more fulfilling lives. Know yourself and live the life that is more in agreement with your changing dispositions while being mindful of the impact of your actions on others. Because relational freedom without social justice, for example, or with narcissism is not relational freedom, it's something Mm. else. Thank you so much for being here, Jorge. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. All right, Bay. how do you feel in terms of thinking of relationships on a spectrum? It's interesting that for the most part, non-traditional relationships, at least here, are still considered kind of shocking or risque. Mm, yeah, I think it depends on your circles. I definitely run in kind of a different circle, being a theater person and all of that. But yeah, other circles in my life, it is totally, <laughs> like you said, risque, stigmatized. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you don't really see like a thruple running for school board. <laughs> Or like a politician with their multiple partners, you know, on stage (laughs) campaigning. Gives a new meaning to pretzel. Boo. Um, (laughs) I'm not the comedian. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. I am excited for our next guest. Janet Hardy has written extensively about navigating different models of relationships, drawing on her own experiences and giving guidance to others. Welcome, Janet. Could you just introduce yourself? Tell us what you do, a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'm Janet Hardy. I don't care what pronouns you use for me. I float around between genders and I don't expect people to keep up with that. I am the author of, I'm working on book number 13 right now, but the one that most people know me for is a book called The Ethical Slut, which is a book about how to have multiple romantic, sexual, et cetera, connections um, in an honest and healthy way. And let's see, I'm 67. I live in Oregon uh, with my equally genderqueer spouse and our pets. And uh, that's what I got. Amazing. And that brings me right into our first question, The Ethical Slut. Incredible title, first of all. Can you, I just want to talk about it a little bit. Can you tell us what does it mean to be an ethical slut? And more importantly, do we all have an ethical slut inside of us? I think we all have a lot of things inside of us, uh, whether whether we choose to let those out or not is uh, an individual decision. Uh, To be an ethical slut means simply to be open to the possibility that 
sex and love and relationships are healthy unless otherwise, unless someone is abusing them, and that it is possible to have as many of those as you have time and energy for, as long as everybody involved knows what's going on and you keep the lines of communication open, that none of those things should be shameful or harmful. I love that. Could you uh, talk about, you know, you brought up shameful and harmful. Could you talk about those specific dangers that come from being honest and open and clear? Absolutely. Um, We all grew up in a culture that is not real fond of sex unless it sells a product. Uh, it's a l- little bit better for you guys' generation than it is for mine, but we all grew up, you know, it's, it's the water we swim in. And it is very difficult not to take on those burdens of shame uh, in talking about or engaging in one's own sex and relationships life. Uh, there's any number of people out there who are going to make you wrong or evil or bad for having the kinds of sex you want with the kinds of people you like. So being an ethical slut is always a little bit swimming upstream against that. There are people who think you're wrong for wanting what you want and doing what you do. So part of what we talk about in the book is how to protect yourself against those cultural uh, oppressions. So we've been talking about, um, you know, polyamory and all of that and and non-monogamy. And I definitely do feel like that's something that makes people extra uncomfortable because there I have plenty of friends who are non-monogamous and it makes monogamous people uncomfortable because it makes them feel like oh I hope my spouse doesn't get any ideas I hope this doesn't rub off on them which is basically a new age version of I I don't want my kid to be around a gay person or they'll become gay or something as if it's It's contagious right yeah when we go on the radio or whatever to talk about BDSM it's pretty easy for listeners to say oh that's that weird stuff nobody does that I don't care about that and they just sort of make it other and don't worry about When we talk about relationships, pretty much everybody is in or has been in or wants to be in a relationship of some kind. And so you can't just shove this aside as irrelevant. Uh, You have to think about it, whether you decide that you want to do it or not. You still have to acknowledge it as a possibility and allow your mind to go to what it might be like to do that. And it may be that you go to what it might be like to do that and you go, oh, shit, no, I don't want to do that. But you still had to think about it. You can't just blow it off. So I think that's why this book strikes people a lot closer to the bone than our previous mm, books. Mm-hmm. Certain level of um, shooting the messenger, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you noticed any early personality behaviors that would tip you to say, like, oh, this person is just going to be strictly monogamous or this person is going to be uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, warm up to poly uh, lifestyles. You know, anything, if someone's holding their toy too tight and they're like, no, this is mine. <laughs> Possessiveness is a, a problem, as is jealousy, but they can be worked with. They can be overcome. That should not be the obstacle. I would say someone with low tolerance for risk or new stimulation might have trouble being poly. People who want to do things that open up new venues for them uh, and that raise the adrenaline and feel exciting. Those people are more often drawn, drawn toward poly. Nonconformists are more often drawn toward poly. We often see people from other sexual minorities or from other cultural minorities. We see a lot of people drifting into poly from things like Ren Faire and science fiction. Because once you've sort of become a misfit or 
recognized your own misfithood, you have a lot less to lose by experimenting with poly or BDSM. It's not like you're going to become a social pariah because you already are one. So you oh, might as no. well go find your people. Um, I, uh, I, I shared before on this show, but I um, I have a, a degree in acting. I went to theater school in the heart of Philadelphia's gayborhood. And I, I know more poly people than most people know poly people because I, I love that thought process. I'm sorry, continue. No, it's quite, that's why we see more queers in poly too, is, you know, when, when you've already said, okay, I'm not part of the mainstream. Then you start looking around and seeing, gee, who else isn't part of the mainstream and what are they doing and might I like to do it too? Uh, so it's kind of a cliche in Polyland how many of us are neo-pagans or science fiction people or so on. That's changing. Back when we published the first edition of Ethical Slut in 97, that was it. That was who we had. We had our misfits. We had our old hippies. We had our geeks. But these days when I speak to uh, audiences on poly topics, uh, I'm seeing a lot more people of color, a lot more people who are more in the mainstream, young professionals, folks like that. Uh, the risks of being seen as poly are lower than they once were, particularly in major cities. And the awareness of poly as an option is also much better than it was 25 years ago. Um, been a long time. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a very different audience. Back in the day, I used to get calls from the producers of talk shows. Uh, and there were more than one of these saying, can you point me toward a poly family that, that they're not like old hippies and they're not like tech geeks? <laughs> I, I would say, no, no. A, you just described my Rolodex. And B, yeah. um, <laughs> B, that's who's doing it now. These days, not so much. These days, I could easily point them toward a poly family that is not either of those yeah, things. Yeah, it's interesting how that, I see that a lot in, in many forms of looking for diversity and trying to, uh, you know, platforms trying to find people to exhibit as a, a token whatever person and they always want it to be the most palatable clean cut Pretty attractive yes. right exactly that you can find so I, I have no doubt um, <laughs> so can you tell us um, you know just from your first memoir what what is a girl fag how do you know if you're a girl fag a girl fag you you might be one because there's a lot of us in theater circles but um yeah I'm sure I am actually <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a female-bodied person who identifies with or as gay men and whose primary sexual attraction is to gay men. And so I'm curious, how can this term girl fag be used to help us understand or explore kind of the shifting meanings of what gender and sexual orientation are? It's a problematic term, and we all know that, and there's no English equivalent that is less problematic. I, I at one point suggested hags with benefits, but it didn't catch. Um, but <laughs> As we move away from binary gender as a model, a lot of our old ideas about sexual orientation tend to dissolve. I mean, what does it mean to say I'm attracted to men if you don't have a definition of men? Uh, does it mean you're attracted to dicks? Does it mean you're attracted to big shoulders? Does it mean you're attracted to deep voices? You know, what are you saying here? And there's none of those things that you cannot get from someone who is not male identified. So I think along with that dissolution of binary gender, we're also seeing a lot of people redefining their orientation. Uh, my usual advice to people who want to talk about issues like this is um, don't get so dependent on nouns. Begin to talk about verbs. It doesn't work as well for me to say I am X for whatever value of X as it does to say I like X 
I don't like X. That way, it, it's fluid. And you can change as the individual changes, as your circumstances change, as your libido changes. Um, the trouble with labels, they're extremely useful politically because they give you an umbrella to stand under to say, look, there are all of these of us. Um, we have some power. That's great. Uh, they become less useful when they become um, descriptive. When you start hearing yourself say something like, I'm not going to do X because I am gay, then they're holding you back. They're not putting you forward in your life. So verbs. As a writer and as an activist, I'm a big fan of verbs. Uh, so the idea of orientation as restrictive I don't think it's been very helpful to us. Thank you for uh, really, really giving us something to chew on and to think about. This was really personally enlightening. I, I definitely learned quite a bit. Cool. Yeah, you. you're blowing my mind, Janet. It's, it's, it's <laughs> <I> my job. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a blow job. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you so You know what? So much. Before we let you go, let me get a final thought. You know, something that you want to share with the So Curious podcast listeners. I am working on another memoir um, called Notes of an Aging Pervert that is going to look at my own aging process and everybody's aging process through the eyes of a queer and kinky person. It's coming out next fall from Unbound Editions and I am thrilled about it. Oh, amazing. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Janet, I wanna be you when I grow up. I am so impressed by you. Thank it's you. incredible. Thank you so much for all you do. <laughs> so what's the conversation around monogamy and non-monogamous relationships like in your circles and the spaces that you navigate. Yeah, so innately as people, we have multiple circles, right? Sometimes they are completely separate. And when I think about even my college friends having gone to theater school in literally the heart of the gayborhood in Philadelphia, could not have been any gayer or more accepting, you know, with such a bubble. These conversations were completely normal. Do you and your partner or your partners want to come hang out tonight? You know, it was just very whatever it is it is. And then thinking of, of like friends from high school maybe or something, you know, who maybe didn't go off and go into the same circles that I did. It was a very different conversation coming from like the little suburbs right outside of Philly, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm hopeful that these conversations can continue to, to be opened up in, in different spaces. I will say that I am just not someone that entertains that in, in, in the personal relationships that I have. Mm -hmm. Like I'm super monogamous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, I, and I've seen people try to explore that in my circles, mm -hmm. but yeah, it hasn't stuck. But uh, yeah, and I appreciate the fact that people are, are having the dialogue at least. And like you said, some people are actually exploring it, it's, it you know, we're starting to understand that, you know, sexuality is a, is a spectrum and behaviors and activities within that spectrum has their own spectrum. And we need to humanize it all and, 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 and offer people the space to look at it safely, explore it safely and, and not be chastised or shamed or anything like that. I haven't really like delved or explored any of mm -hmm. any of those things. Yeah. Thanks to Janet Hardy and Dr. Jorge Ferrer for being on this episode of So Curious. Yeah, I love that we get to pick the minds of scientists on whatever we want. <laughs> Next week, we are going to be speaking to an expert on mm, sexually explicit porn. It's porn. That's the technical <laughs> name for porn. <laughs> How does it affect our brains? 
when does it start to cause a problem? So this and more on next week's episode. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and leave us a rating. Yeah, if you like what you're hearing, my name is Kirsten. If you do not like what I'm saying, my name is The Bull Bay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Kirsten Michelle Sills. Thank you all for hanging out with me. And I am The Bull Bay. We'll see you next week. So Curious is presented by the Franklin Institute and special thanks to the Franklin Institute producers, Joy Montefusco and Dr. Jayatri Das. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. The managing producer is Emily Cherish. The producer is Liliana Green. The lead audio engineer and editor is Christian Cederland. The editors are Lauren DeLuca and Justin Berger. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. The science writer is Kira Vayette. And the graphic designer is Emma Sager. 